From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. The Trump administration missed a deadline this week set by congressional Republicans to get them a revised North American free trade agreement in time to ratify it by year's end. And Trump's top trade negotiator, Robert Lighthizer, says he is, quote, nowhere close to a deal, unquote, with the other parties to the 24-year-old deal, Canada and Mexico. With Democrats hoping to retake control of Congress in 2019, Trump's trade agenda is in disarray. To fill us in on what's going on, I have Ellen Ferguson, CQ Trade reporter here today. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you, Sean. So, Ellen, why has it proven so hard to reach a deal on NAFTA? Well, I think the administration came in with a very ambitious timetable to begin with on renegotiating NAFTA. They wanted to get it done last year, and then it spilled over into this year. I don't think it's unsurprising that it's taking so long, especially since the administration went in with some fairly firm proposals that did not plan to really negotiate. And I think the administration has encountered probably more resistance from Mexico and Canada than it initially expected. But that's the nature of negotiations. So I think it's... um, I think we're probably going to get maybe a more realistic timeline for revamping the agreement. I think what has happened is everyone agrees that there is value in in NAFTA. Um, The difference here is how much of a change do you want to make on some of the really important aspects of it. All right. Well, we know Donald Trump is very skeptical of these multilateral trade agreements that were reached in years past. What does he want to change? First of all, he wants to reduce the trade deficit with Mexico. Secondly, he wants to um, revamp particularly the auto industry. There's a closely interrelated auto industry supply chain among the three countries. He wants to tip that balance so that more jobs more stay in the United States, more production is done in the United States than moving to Mexico. They've made some proposals on labor about raising the, the wages there in Mexico, um, to make them more competitive and more expensive. So that would be sort of a, a dissuader, perhaps, to auto industries about moving some of their uh, production lines down there. He also wants to uh, get rid of something called the investor state dispute resolution, which is just a fancy way of saying an arbitration process in which you have private lawyers um, reviewing cases that businesses have filed alleging that government policies have somehow affected their bottom line. Robert Lighthizer, in particular, has a philosophical um, problem with that. He sees that as potentially usurping sovereignty. They want to change procurement rules. Under NAFTA, Mexico and Canada have been treated favorably when their companies apply for or compete for um, federal contracts. He wants to change that percentage so that it's more domestic. It goes to more U.S. companies. So, And the other big thing that's a, a kind of um, showstopper is the administration proposed that NAFTA be reviewed every five years with the any one of the three countries having the option of just saying, I'm done and walking away. So on the trade deficit piece, you mentioned he wants to reduce that trade deficit. The trade deficit means basically that Americans buy more things 
that are produced in Mexico, then Mexicans buy American things, right? Yes. And so how does that how do you reduce that? Well, something called managed trade, where that would be one approach. I don't know that that's particularly the approach they're using with Mexico, where you set a target for imports and you limit the number of imports coming in. Um, one other thing would be to encourage Mexico to buy more American goods. And then, as I said, I mentioned the um, labor part in, in NAFTA about raising Mexican wages so that they are more competitive and more expensive. You tip the balance that way, then maybe more of the cars are produced and other products are produced in the United States rather than in Mexico. So there are several different approaches. You know, economists sort of differ on this. The majority of economists seem to think that when it comes to the trade deficit, it's not something that should keep you up at night. It's something you should probably keep an eye on. And then there's the faction which President Trump has aligned with where they see it as draining the wealth of the country and also a reflection potentially of other countries employing unfair trade practices that somehow reduce market access for U.S. goods, U.S. companies, and China being the primary um, center of that of that theory. You also mentioned automobiles. That's a priority for President Trump. There was uh, there were some reports that there we were close to a deal on that automobile piece. Where does that stand? I believe that uh, uh, Trade Representative Lighthizer, he's the top. Um, negotiator for uh, the United States, included that among the issues, the seven issues that he named yesterday that are still outstanding. Um, I think they may have moved closer together. Um, Mexico seems to indicate that they believe they've moved closer together, but there's still um, differences in computing this, and it's it, it, it matters because this is a big industry, a lot of big bucks, and it affects all three of the countries. So it's something that uh, Mexico and uh, in particular said, we want to get this right because this is going to affect us. It's going to affect all of us. And we also don't want to diminish North American competitiveness. That means the three of them being com a competitive region against Europe and other places where cars are produced. So, Ellen, part of this is about China, right, about content for automobiles and other things imported from China. Yes. Stopping that. And where does that stand? Well, they're still trying to work that out. The United States came in, particularly on autos, initially with a demand that 85% of content in cars manufactured in any of the three NAFTA countries contain material from one or all three of the NAFTA countries. That's up from 62%. And then there was a separate demand that 50% of content from cars made in the United States come from the United States as a way of kind of raising the barrier and reducing the need to bring in imports. Now, as I understand it, there was some dickering and the United States came down to maybe 75%. I think Mexico was talking 70%, but the devil's in the details there. How do you compute that? Are we talking about different levels? Do you, I think at one point, Canada proposed also counting um, innovation design as opposed to you know a hard hardware um, software does that count so there are a lot of details to be worked out and a lot of things to be agreed agreed on so there's been some movement on that but there's still as I said this is a very important industry to all three countries and they want to make sure that they don't they don't put themselves at a disadvantage so the business roundtable I saw today this is a trade association for top corporate 
executives in the United States uh, put out a statement, which and it sounded like they are very worried about protecting these investor dispute resolu- uh, processes. Why, why do they care so much about that? Well, if you're public citizen global trade watch, it's because they want to protect their profits and intimidate countries. If you're the businesses, what they're saying is it's less so perhaps in uh, with uh, Mexico and Canada, but the revamped NAFTA will probably serve as a, a template for other uh, trade agreements that the United States enters into. And what they want is protection against the ability of a country to maybe nationalize a business or to decide that they don't particularly like businesses from a particular country, and so they target their their policies. Now, under this process, and this is one of the things that disturbs people, is that it's um, a tribunal uh, or three private attorneys who review the case that's filed by the business, and they make a decision. Now, they don't have the power to change a law or a, a, a rule, but they do have the power to award damages and that there would be a chilling effect, especially with poorer countries. So far, the United States has not lost an investor state dispute case, but you know that can only run so long. So there is the concern about that, and the other part of the concern is that companies use that to intimidate countries, to get them to back off of public health laws, particularly like maybe dealing with smoking or other things. So there is that push and pull. And Trump is on the opposite side of the businesses on this one. He wants to alter these processes. Well, I, Robert Lighthizer doesn't like them, so I'm assuming at this point, since the president hasn't spoken up, right. that— And what does he envision? I mean, what, what kind of process does he envision? Well, he says that, you know, in the United States, we have a strong judiciary system. Go to the federal courts, go to the state courts, you know, fight it out there. Those, those are processes that the United States has put into place and are constitutional. The thing that the uh, businesses will respond is that uh, it is a backup, particularly in countries where you do not have an independent judiciary um, and where you cannot, where government con- or where contracts are not enforced. That it is the one way that perhaps you can recoup a loss or send a message. So during his 2016 campaign, Trump just said he was going to withdraw from NAFTA. Since he's having trouble reaching an agreement with Canada and Mexico, might he go? Might he do that? I think that is still possible. What effect that will have, I don't know. I, I think there would be some economic fallout for both Canada and Mexico, but Mexico in particular has already seen the peso battered when the president has said that he is thinking about pulling out. Mexico has been very busy entering into or negotiating other trade agreements. Mexico and Canada have not been standing still. They can't find, at this point, other trade agreements that are total replacements for NAFTA, but they have made trade agreements with the European Union. They are trying to broaden their reach, their uh, trade reach, and uh, to kind of have a uh, plan B. It won't completely substitute for NAFTA, but I think they're, they're trying to prepare, and I think it's a possibility. So why did congressional Republicans say they needed to see this deal by May 17th? Why, why that date? Well, I think that uh, Speaker Ryan was trying to prod some uh, final closing on the uh, negotiations and also to remind the administration that under something called the Trade Promotion Authority, 
under which NAFTA is being negotiated, there are timelines that have to be hit. Now, you can probably make some things concurrent and squeeze some other things here and there, especially since NAFTA is an existing agreement and there's some there are things that are already known about its effect on the U.S. economy. But I think it was just a reminder that time's a ticking and you need to get it done at some point. I don't know that May 17th is necessarily a drop dead date, but I think sometime in May. And they, they would have to go to a vote to ratify whatever new deal emerges. It emerges. Yes. All Ryan was saying to them is reach some sort of agreement, formally notify us that you have an agreement, that starts the clock running, and then there are these other steps that you have to meet. But Congress does not have a say, by contrast, if Trump simply says, we're withdrawing. At this point, it appears so. There are people arguing that maybe there might be a room for Congress to step in and assert itself and to stop the withdrawal. Now, the withdrawal is, it would be a notification which says the United States will be leaving this agreement in six months. So it's not something that's immediate. But six months is really not enough time for Congress to do much of anything. So I don't know if Congress wanted to assert itself, if it would, if it, if it indeed would have the time to do so. And it'd have to pass whatever it passed on a veto-proof majority. Well, that's the other thing. That's, that's sort of the conundrum that Congress is in. Even if a Republican-run Congress, and there's a lot of concern, a lot of worry about uh, the president's trade policy, um, even if they decided that we're going to stand up to the president or defy the president or act on behalf of our constituents, they still have to have a veto-proof majority, and that's probably unlikely. And that raises the questions of the Democrats. Uh, the Democrats typically in the past, before President Trump, had been the party more, more skeptical of these trade agreements. And there's a decent chance that they will take back one or both of the chambers of Congress in the next election. So if this bleeds into next year and the Democrats have control of the House or have control of the House and the Senate, how does that change the dynamics for reaching a new NAFTA in 2019? Well, I guess it would change the dynamics. How much? I don't know. Because actually, I have been somewhat surprised um, in listening to the reactions and the responses of, of Democrats, particularly House Democrats on NAFTA, because NAFTA has been a favorite target of uh, Democrats as an example. They're right on the same page as, as President Trump of it being the worst ever trade agreement. Right. The labor unions, very powerful in the Democratic Party, uh, have long said that. But I think congressional Democrats are finding out that they have constituents who created businesses and jobs under NAFTA and that it's very integral to protecting their communities. And so I see some of the congressional Democrats that I would expect to um, be more vocally opposed to NAFTA, kind of trying to strike a balance. And you mentioned the business community. They have been very active here lobbying uh, to protect the deal. Do you think they've had an effect on the president? I mean, he's, he hasn't withdrawn from it. Right. I think the president said re uh, recently that in April 2017, he had thought very seriously about withdrawing from NAFTA. But essentially, there was an, an intervention members of his cabinet, the business community, the agriculture community, and other free traders came in and said, you can't do this. It's going to wreak havoc on parts of the economy. It's going to affect some of your most ardent supporters. 
it's just not what you want to do at this point because the economy is recovering, and this would be a blow in some parts of the country. Right. The farm piece is very important because we export a lot of agricultural products, and those are made in Trump country, in the middle of the country. Yes, they are. Well, thank you, Alan, so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Sean. I am Sean Zeller. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall.